everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on the show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Okay, so we're going to talk about a core principle to Ray Dalio's worldview, which is the idea meritocracy. And I'll open by reading a quote from his book, Principles. Ray writes, Idea meritocratic decision-making is better than traditional autocratic or democratic decision-making in almost all cases, unquote. So an idea meritocracy, it's basically a cultural paradigm. Uh, you could call this like a free market for ideas, if you will. It's a way of subjecting ideas to like a simulated form of natural selection. Uh, or as I, as I said earlier, it's a kind of a Darwinism for ideas, you know. Um, again, ideas sort of competing, um, some succeeding, some dying, some reproducing, etc. And, and the idea of meritocracy is basically an open environment, and it's designed to cultivate conditions that afford the proliferation and combination of the most meritorious ideas, which is to say the best ideas, the most useful ideas, if you will, uh, free from man-made impediments, such as like ego, policy, hierarchy, etc. So, whereas most organizations are premised on a hierarchical model, right? Those at the top tell those lower down what to do. Ray's attempt with the idea meritocracy is to make the ideas themselves the controlling authority, right? The best ideas are what fuel actions in an idea meritocratic culture. So as I said earlier, you know, team members at Bridgewater review one another's work. This includes both subordinates and superordinates reviewing one another. Uh, they review their meeting contributions, their attitudes in real time, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they use this suite of custom-made management tools, software, where they'll actually be scoring and reviewing one another during the, the very meeting itself. Um, all with the aim of, of gathering real-time feedback and, and making better decisions, ultimately. And an idea of meritocracy, it's intended to be aligned with reason, 
human reason and impervious to politics. That's kind of the aim, right? It's, you want information to be flowing freely and you want to eliminate individual bias as much as possible, which is something the free market also really uh, tries to do. Um, and so we see this in the world that the more objectively measurable and traceable the outcome of a job is, the less political it is, um, as competence will be the primary determinant of the job. So you could look at something like a professional athlete, right? They have pretty damn objective criteria for success, right? Points, blocks, rebounds, home runs, touchdowns, whatever the, the sport you're playing is, there's some uh, role you're, you're, you're fulfilling on the field or on the court, whatever it is, and there's some quantifiable metric attached to that role. And athletes that are better score more points, right? Or they do better on, on these measurable criteria. And that's why professional athletics is relatively low politic, right? It's like, if you're good at the job, you're gonna get the job. It doesn't matter how cool you are or how much charisma or rhetoric you have. Like maybe these things help you get sponsorships and other side deals as a professional athlete. But when it comes to actually securing a position in the game itself, you're gonna be measured based on these objective criteria. Now compare that to something like a politician, right? Politicians don't really have any observable, measurable criteria. They have a lot of promises that they make, a lot of things that they say they will do, a lot of things that they might take credit for, right? Like the GDP was improving or something, they, they may say that was uh, due to their decisions and actions. But it's not objectively measurable and that that's why that whole profession, I think, is kind of a mess. You know, you can't, it, there's a lot of bullshit in politics because you can't really get the signal from the noise so easily because there aren't uh, objectively measurable metrics by which to, to compare these individuals. So, again, idea meritocracy intended to be aligned with reason, resistant to politics, uh, reintroduces these means of objectively measuring individual performance to try and, and dampen the political aspect of, of the organization. And so in that way, you know, again, if everything we say, do, or make starts out as an idea, the idea meritocracy and the free market are kind of the same thing, right? They're, we're trying to have this domain where ideas compete freely and we minimize the human frictions to good ideas, like, you know, ego and uh, and title and all of these other things. So, all right, to shift gears a little bit, now we're gonna shift kind of into an examination of markets themselves, and then we'll bring it back uh, to connect it to, to the idea of meritocracy. So, markets are necessary to disseminate human knowledge or ideas because knowledge has a localized dimension to it, meaning every person that is most familiar with the prevailing economic circumstances specific to their time and place and industry, you have an advantage, right? If something happens in a local market, you can act on that information quickly in a way that 
if you had to feed that information into a bureaucratic system and wait for the command to come back down from on high before you acted, that information would not be as useful, right? You'd be much slower to react or adapt to uh, circumstances as they change. And free markets are the best assimilators and disseminators of these localized pools of knowledge because each individual is acting based on that localized knowledge, right? I don't need approval from some bureaucracy if I'm an entrepreneur. I just decide what's best for me in my specific circumstances, specific industry, etc. And so in that way, you know, a free market, another way to think about it is you have this nexus of many minds. Again, all entrepreneurs betting against one another, trying to find better, faster, cheaper way of satisfying consumer demand. And these minds are networked together by the pricing mechanism, as we said. And you could think about, it's almost like, uh, many minds becoming one hive mind, if you will. That is the marketplace. That's what the idea of meritocracy is intended to be, right? Kind of this, this reasonable hive mind, if you will. And that is, that's the essence of capitalism, as we said earlier. And now, free market capitalism is directed by the decisions of economic actors, like people with real skin in the game, real exposure to local circumstances, um, whereas socialism or central planning, unfree markets, this opposite of free market capitalism, which I'll call uh, an unfree market, let's just say, that comes with a lot of other designations, it's directed by the decisions of just a handful of bureaucrats. So there's just a few people on top attempting to decide for everyone else, and they are they are without the knowledge being disseminated by the pricing mechanism. And so this, like, if you look at something like Soviet Russia, this was one of their biggest problems, is they had pricing czars. So instead of letting the price be determined in the marketplace, they had a bureaucracy that would assign prices to goods and change prices to goods all the time. They were making tens of thousands of pricing decisions per day. And again, with not really any no localized knowledge, not, it's not coming from buying and selling, like where supply actually meets demand out of the marketplace. These are just sort of arbitrary decisions being made inside of bureaucracy. There have been a lot of arguments made that the only reason it, that model was able to be as, as effective as long as it was is because they were copying the prices that they saw in free market economies like the United States, and they would just try to like correspond to those prices. Um, which gave them like a, a working proxy to, to keep the system going. So in that way, we could put this put this under the, the bucket of free market capitalism and unfree market socialism. So in an unfree market, you have top-down, unnatural, despotic, traditional org chart, right? It's the guy at the top tells the guys below what to do and tells the guys below what to do, so on and so forth, right? All the power accretes to the top, all the authority um, propagates downward. Now, capitalism is opposite to that, really. It's, it's, it's bottom-up, it's natural, it's democratic. This would be much more like the idea of meritocratic organization, um, not where there is pressure from on high to bend to be bent to the will of the person above you, 
but rather it is what is the best and most useful idea demanded by consumers in the marketplace. That is the thing that wins. So that is free market capitalism in, in kind of a nutshell. And so I guess the elephant in the room here is when it comes to Ray, it's like in light of the overwhelming evidence favoring a free market economic system, why do we still tolerate central planning in the largest market of all, which is the market for money? Right? We know all these things. We know monopolies are bad. We know knowledge has a localized dimension to it. We know that free markets are more informationally efficient than unfree markets. Yet we still tolerate in the most important market in the world, central planning, right? Central banking is central planning of money effectively. And so again, Ray has this formula for the idea of meritocracy that I, I wanna attempt to map free market onto um, to derive a, a similarly useful formula. And what Ray gives us is the idea meritocracy equals radical truth plus radical transparency plus believability weighted decision making. Now this correlates to a free market formula and now each of those, each component of that formula, radical truth, radical transparency, believability weighted decision making. These are three additional principles. So we started with the idea of meritocracy as a principle. It is composed of these three additional principles, which we will go into next. Um, but I want to lay it out here because I'm going to revisit this formulaic structure at the end. And so I think that formula for the idea of meritocracy correlates or corresponds to a free market formula, which I have described as free markets equal truthful price signals plus transparent and reliable rule of law, property rights, and hard money plus skin in the game weighted decision making. Now, with those two formulas in mind, I wanna go through the three principles that make up the idea of meritocracy and then, like I said, circle back to the free market formula. And we'll dive into each of these elements and consider their relationship with markets, money, Bitcoin, etc. And the first one of these we're gonna go into is the principle of radical truth. And I'll read another excerpt from Ray's book here. He writes, truth, or more precisely, an accurate understanding of reality is the essential foundation for any good outcome. Now, again, it's one of those things that seems somewhat intuitive if you don't have a good representation of the reality that you're dealing with, then you're probably not going to be able to deal with that reality effectively. <laughs> um, if you have a map taking you from A to B, but it's a misdrawn map and B is not where it's supposed to be, then you're not likely to get from A to B in the real world, right? You need a useful map to navigate a territory successfully. So this idea of radical truth, it's centered on the idea of gaining a clear perception of reality is paramount to facing it head on and dealing with it effectively, like pretty straightforward. 
And in markets, it's commonly said, this is a, a common uh, trope on Wall Street, that price is truth. Meaning that all known market realities, all the information of the world is basically expressed in any particular asset's price at any given moment. Uh, you may have heard things like people say that you can't time the market, you can't outsmart the market, things like this. It's because that distributed, that distributed computing system that is the free market, it has all of the decisions and opinions and perspectives of everyone participating in that marketplace baked into that price, right? That price is informed, if you will, by all of this, this collective um, economic activity related to an asset. No individual, if an individual has some uh, knowledge that does not exist in that price, then they have an opportunity to arbitrage, that they can actually make a trade on that asset, whether it's to the, the long side or the short side, and they can profit from that information that they have that the market does not. And that is the incentive that draws out the information and keeps making sure that the price contains all the relevant information for all market actors. Because if it doesn't, the price is literally paying people <laughs> to inform it, right? To short it or long it or express their thesis in it. Um, which then that information that they had in their mind then becomes a part of the price and the cycle continues. So you may remember from Economics 101 that the market price occurs at the intersection of supply and demand. Now, a key point here, supply is something I would call that is, it's much more of an objective quality. Right? There's a certain supply of things in the world, right? whatever the thing is. Um, I might not know it exactly, but there's only a certain number of trucks in the world, for instance, at any given moment. Now, so I would say supply is, is objective. Demand, on the other hand, is subjective. Right? This is what individuals uh, want. Right, these are their wants. This is you could also call this an opinion-based quality, right? That, um, what I think is best for me is my own opinion. It's not necessarily an objective truth, per se. Um, but the, the point I'm trying to make here is you've got price occurring at the intersection of supply, which is objective, and demand, which is subjective. Now, I say this because I think it's useful for explaining what a price really is. We talked about this earlier with exchange ratios, money basically converting exchange ratios into prices. But put another way, prices are data packets that are conveying information about really the, the, the supply and the demand, or you could say the scarcity and the value uh, of a particular asset. So, again, supply is going to be something much more objective and demand is going to be something more subjective. But the price is like synthesizing the two of these together into one data packet. And it's saying, based on the existing supply for whatever this asset is in the world and how much demand there is for it, that this price represents this mon you know price expressed in money represents the 
amount of sacrifice you need to make to obtain a thing, something like that. So if it's a certain kind of truck, for instance, right, that truck might be priced at $50,000. Maybe $50,000 is roughly uh, one year's wages in the U.S., something like that. So it's it's communicating to market actors that, hey, if you want this form of transportation, it's going to cost you about one year's wages, right? It's this, this, that's a data packet. It's information. The price is information and it's informing uh, market actors as it is also informed by market actors and their actions. So, and again, we touched on this a little bit earlier, where if I buy a house and sell a car, I'm informing the market, right? Produce more houses, produce less cars. So in that way, we could say each entrepreneur's decision to buy or sell is influenced by prevailing market prices. And in turn, it communicates into the market the state of economic conditions relevant to him, which again, in turn, influences the same decision-making of all other entrepreneurs within his market. And that is the, the intersubjective piece of it, right? It's, it's, it is this uh, scoreboard, I guess, of assets, like what, how much a thing will really require in, term, in terms of time, energy, or resources to obtain. And if it's, if it's, if someone is buying trucks for $50,000 and I can make them at $40,000, through whatever means that I have, then all of a sudden I have an incentive to become a truck manufacturing entrepreneur. So this is that dynamic computational system that's constantly allocated resources, allocating resources to their highest and best uses at all times. And anytime they're not at their highest and best use, again, there's an incentive for someone else to redeploy that capital in a way that's uh, more consistent uh, with, with with consumer wants or more efficient. And so all of those decisions that are being made, these are all based on the actual availability of time and know-how and all of that, right? Again, it's, a, it's an objective form of supply, right? There's only so much, there's only so many factors of production out there and the price contains all that information, right? All that subjective information, all that objective information contained in one actionable um, metric, which is really important for coordinating human beings at scale. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I'll give a company some money in case shit happens. <laughs> now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. 
Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open-source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Central Banking essentially breaks the truthfulness of money by centralizing gold and issuing the dollars redeemable for gold on top of it in excess of gold reserves. So again, if price is truth, price is denominated in money, when central banks issue dollars in excess of gold reserves, and in 1971, they completely depegged the dollar from gold. You are now effectively uh, interrupting the capacity of that monetary technology to establish an accurate price, which is to say to tell the truth, to inform market actors of what's really going on in the world of supply and demand. And you're tilting the information that that money conveys towards the agenda or policy of the central bank itself, right? Again, if the price goes up in a centrally banked economy, I don't know if that was Jerome Powell's monetary policy causing that price to increase or that was real people expending real resources to obtain a real asset that there was a net, uh, a net increase to demand that caused that price to go up. I cannot disentangle signal from noise in that situation. So when central banks issue dollars that are unbacked by gold, you're effectively severing the skin in the game of money. Now, this gives central banks a mechanism for perpetually privatizing profits from money production. Uh, this is a, a phenomenon called seniorage, which you could, you could look up, but basically means central banks are able to profit from the face value of a, a banknote in excess of its production cost, which 
tends to be quite a lot, considering it doesn't cost very much to produce paper dollars, especially considering they're mostly just electronic entries on a database, so they're not even physically produced. So it, uh, by breaking the skin in the game in money, by monopolizing money, you give this mechanism for central banks to privatize profits and to socialize losses. So it's a heads I win, tells you lose situation. They keep all the profits, and then if there are losses, they can externalize those onto the population via inflation. Now, skin in the game is a concept from the author Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And uh, he's written a number of great books. I draw on his wisdom a lot in my, my writing and my thinking. And skin in the game is based on symmetry. It's a balance of incentives and disincentives that is necessary for most systems to function properly. So what's a good way to think about this? Um, you know, stock options. A lot of executives have stock options, which means they are paid in options to buy the company's stock at a certain strike price. Now their incentive is to increase the company share price so they could then exercise that option at a, a low exercise price and then buy the stock that's in trading at a higher price and sell it, right? So they haven't they're positively incentivized to increase the net asset value of the organization that they work in. Now, you might think that it's like, oh, that's good. They have skin in the game. That seems positive. But the flip side of that, which Taleb explores in a few of his books, is that those same executives incur no losses if they don't add value to the organization, right? If they decrease the share price, there's not a disincentive. They don't, they're not penalized. So this led to a lot of weird, he talks about the Robert Rubin trade, I think in his book, where uh, I think Robert Rubin was at Goldman Sachs, I could be wrong, but he basically had a 10-year run, he made a lot of decisions inside the bank that loaded it up with hidden risk, right? He made a lot of bad bets that maybe didn't materialize for, or had not materialized yet. And all the while, he's getting paid on his stock options, right? He's increasing the company value for 10 years. He made tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, I can't recall. And then finally, when he, he takes an exit, a lot of these deals that he had, he had loaded the bank up with start to blow up, right? And it's really like very destructive to the enterprise value of the organization. And he suffered no, no disincentive from that. So the point here is that when the incentives and disincentives are out of balance, that you get these weird behaviors where someone like Robert Rubin will go in and make a bunch of risky bets just to get paid, knowing that you know he keeps upside and he has no exposure to the downside. So he has an unbounded upside option, and that distorts how he behaves as a manager within that organization. So as this applies to fiat currency, there's effectively no disincentive to fiat currency production within the system. As there's a near zero cost of money production, central bankers are incentivized to print that money into worthlessness. And they can acquire any scarce asset with these self-annihilating currencies on their gradual and sudden way to zero. So what does this mean? It means that there's every incentive for central bank insiders, and I'll include you know, bureaucrats, central bank shareholders, central bank uh, governors, all in this. They're all getting paid for money production, right? 
they suffer no losses if the currency, if people suffer inflation. There's not like a penalty if there's inflation. Uh, there's not a penalty if there's a hyperinflation. Um, and they are basically as, as they're getting paid to produce this money, they also have an incentive to take the newly produced money and spend it before it enters wider circulation and devalues um, the, hol the holders of dollars, right? So that when you're printing money, you're debasing the purchasing power of the money. So if you're getting that new money first, you have an incentive to spend it and acquire something that can't be printed. And that's indeed what many of these people do, right? They use their inside privileged position within the central bank complex to siphon wealth off of people, off of dollar users worldwide, and to enrich themselves. And again, that's the, the Cantillon effect, the shadow tax, all these things that it's been called, we talked about at the top of the show. And there's a great quote here. You know, a wise man once said that inflation is the surest way to fertilize the rich man's field with the sweat of the poor man's brow. And there is a lot of wisdom contained in that quote because that is effectively what the state and what governments have been doing for as long as there have been states or governments, is they have used force to monopolize the money. And then whether it was coin clipping or quantitative easing, as we call it today, they use that uh, violently preserved position to enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. And so, as I argue a lot of my work, I think this is one of the core reasons the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, because the money is corrupt, right? The money is stealing from you all the time. So, very importantly, understood in this way, inflation of the money supply is everywhere and always nothing more than a violation of private property rights as it reallocates wealth away from its original owners into the hands of those closest to the governors of the monetary system, right? That is the Cantillon effect in a nutshell. And inflation is also distorting the price signals propagated by fiat currency, causing entrepreneurs to overborrow, misallocate capital, and to misprice risk. And this, to, it's hard to overstate how terrible those three things are. Overborrowing, misallocating capital, mispricing risk. This is like throwing a, uh, a wrench in the, the bicycle wheel of the free market machine or something. It just really disrupts and interrupts what it is trying to accomplish all the time. So we could think of inflation almost like a computer virus that's corrupting these data packets that we call price signals, right? You can't understand the meaning of the message is lost when you start to debase the currency. And for the same economic reasons that price fixing led to the starvation of millions in Soviet Russia, fixing the quote unquote price of money, which is the interest rate, causes these recurrent economic calamities this, what we call today the business cycle. And this is Mises in the 1940s. This was his like crowning achievement that he described the Austrian business cycle theory, where once you start to debase the currency, it actually amplifies the volatility of the business cycle. So you get bigger economic booms 
and more severe and faster bust. And that is indeed what we've seen uh, since the inception of the Federal Reserve in the United States, that the business cycle has become more volatile, more severe. Um, and, you know, if you want a well-functioning market, the price of money, just like all other prices, must emerge through the intersection of supply and demand. It cannot be dictated. It cannot be, cannot be decreed by fiat, right? It does not work when you do that. Again, the pricing czars in Soviet Russia, it doesn't work. It falls apart. It interrupts the informational throughput of the free market economy. It interrupts our ability to generate good and useful ideas, to create wealth, to solve problems. It is, it's a computer virus on the free market. I, it would be the simplest way to put it. And any attempt to centrally plan the market for money can only distort truth in the form of distorted prices. And it triggers this overborrowing, misallocation of capital, mispricing of risk, recessions, the boom and bust business cycle. All of these things are rooted in the disturbance of the economic medium of communication, which is money. Now, this is such an important point. I want to like hammer this at home with yet another example. So another way to look at fiat currency price signal distortion is with an example called Wittgenstein's ruler. Now, his name is spelled Wittgenstein, but I think it's pronounced Wittgenstein. I might, might be wrong about that. You have to check me. But he has this great little uh, adage, and he says that unless you have confidence in a ruler's reliability and you use a ruler to measure a table, you might also be using the table to measure the ruler. The less you trust the ruler's reliability, right, the unit of reference, the frame of reference, the more information you're getting about the frame or the ruler itself and the less information you're getting about the table. We need universal constants of measurement to communicate about things. That's what the kilogram is, the mile, the inch, the pound, the foot, all these things are fixed units of measurement that we use to superimpose on a constantly changing world and then we can communicate about it, right? Now, if those units of measurement are also fluctuating in a fluctuating world, you cannot measure or make sense of anything uh, that's being measured in those units. It just doesn't make sense. So said differently, the more you can trust a unit of measurement and its, its fixity, right, its unchangeableness, its immutability, the more signal it will give you and the less noise, right? Uh, you know, a kilogram is a kilogram is a kilogram. It, it gives me a lot of signal when I say something weighs 100 kilograms because I know how much that weighs. I know, I don't have to guess how much a kilogram actually weighs, right? It's equal to 2.2 pounds or, or whatever it may be. So, again, this gives you a good useful frame on how crazy our current monetary system is. Um, and with something like Bitcoin, you get this absolutely fixed supply money. So Bitcoin would restore the clarity of these economic nerve signals called prices, right? This coordinating all this human action. 
And again, it's so critical, like you, you have to have accurate prices to get capital allocated intelligently, to get risk priced properly, uh, to prevent overborrowing, to induce entrepreneurial coordination across time and space. You cannot do any of these things that are so essential to human flourishing without a reliable economic unit of measurement. Now, people, the terminologically, people get hung up here because they say, oh, you can't measure value because it's subjective. And you're right, you can't measure it per se. But let's just say that money is in a, a good approximate gauge of value, right? When the price of something, again, price is truth. Price tells you how much people want the thing and it tells you how many of those things are available in the world, all distilled down into one concrete number. So if we take, if we roll this back to gold, right? We said gold was a free market money. You could kind of say that gold was a universal system of measurement for value. And again, I'm not getting specific about the term measurement, insert approximate gauge here if you like, but it was a reliable, universal, predictable denominator for prices in the marketplace, which means things denominated in gold, prices denominated in gold were useful, right? They were actionable. They were not, they were signal rather than noise. And again, universal units of measurement like seconds, meters, kilograms, these are all immutable in value to maximize the coordination of human action across time and space. If they fluctuate, there is no coordination. On these global foundations of standardized measurement, the machinery of global commerce is constructed. We've got builders of skyscrapers, electronics, myriad other goods, all rely on the constancy of the measurement unit when sourcing materials and coordinating labor efforts from around the world. And the immutable money supply of Bitcoin means that once it is used widely enough to function as a unit of account, that its price signals will carry more truth than any other money in history. And that is such a big deal. Uh, to finally have a system that lies don't propagate. You know, it's only action and truth fits in the system, if you will. Um, it's hard to imagine what the implications, what, what the total implications of something like that could be. Uh, you could also say Bitcoin is just a monetary channel free from the noise of unexpected supply fluctuations or inflation, which necessarily means, it's another way of saying, that it carries the clearest signals, right? Low noise, high signal. That's, that's Bitcoin in, in terms of, of prices. So in that way, I think Bitcoin is the perfect conveyor of the data packets known as price signals. And to take it maybe like on a slightly more philosophical bent, if you say, if we analogize money to being something like economic water, right? It's the medium that we're all immersed within. Uh, we're constantly thinking through it and using it to deal with one another, even if we don't, like I just bought this can of water for a dollar earlier. 
how many tens of thousands of people are connected to the production structure and supply chains that went about bringing this aluminum can filled with uh, soda water, sparkling water, and delivered it into a refrigerated unit into this building, and I could just go down there and pay a dollar and get it. I mean, I just communicated with tens of thousands of people without ever knowing it, right? For me, it was just scanning. I actually paid with Bitcoin, so I just scanned a little QR code, paid a few thousand sats, poof, here it is. But what I fail to see or fail to account for are all the tens of thousands of people that go into making this thing possible. Um, it, you know, it is very much like economic water in that we're communicating with, with people all the time, even when we don't know it. Uh, we're all swimming in the same water, I guess you might say. So if money is economic water, fiat currency is inscrutably murky, right? It has lots of noise. You can't tell whether the price changes are real or they are inflation-driven, you know, monetary policy-driven. And Bitcoin would be the opposite. Bitcoin would be crystal clear economic water. Uh, has pure signal, absolutely zero unexpected inflation or supply fluctuations. And an economy run on a Bitcoin standard would again, per Mises, would then have fewer booms and busts, right? It would be a more stable, more healthy, more sustainable economic system. And this brings us this idea of, of clarity and transparency in the economic water we call money brings us to the second formulaic element of Ray, Ray's idea meritocracy, which is the principle of radical transparency.